0: Love, Hope, Radio. Good evening, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this week is Children's Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, as many of you know, um, I have two children. Um, with severe anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders, so this is very near and dear to my heart and um, you know what I found in my journey is that um, you know education really brings the empowerment and the calm um, that you need for your children and for yourself and so tonight, I am just thrilled to be able to bring you what I consider to be one of the best resources um, to help you with your children with anxiety disorders and a lot of other mental illnesses, as you're going to learn um, as we get to know the Child Mind Institute. The Child Mind Institute, and tonight I have um, Dr. Jerry Buberk, who is the Senior Director of Anxiety and Mood Disorder Center. He's the Director of Intensive Pediatric Obsessive-Compulsive Spectrum Disorders Program, and um, he is a nationally renowned cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, he specializes in OCD. Um, he's, he's really... As you're going to learn, he is the voice for these children, and he's also becoming the voice and the empowerment for the parents, and I'm just very honored to bring him on. Um, He is heading up Speak Up for Kids, which we're going to be discussing later on in the interview, and um, if you get a chance, you really need to stop by this website because it is so impressive, childmind.org. So um, without further ado, Dr. Bubrick, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Hi.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, you know, first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the Child's Mind Institute? Because this is really very impressive. The, um, it's a very comprehensive organization that you have.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's an amazing uh, center, it's an amazing place to work. Um, I, there's not a day that I, that I, I, um, I, I mean, every day I, I just love being there, and the people are, are amazing. But the center itself, uh, the institute itself, is. Um, uh, the only um, um, centered nonprofit center that 's designed and dedicated towards um, improving children 's mental health, so we are um, a group of uh, uh, psychiatrists psychologists neuropsychologists, researchers who are all working together to uh, transform mental health care for children, adolescents, and families um, we we are constantly looking towards building and establishing more evidence-based treatment for children, educating parents, educating teachers, educating the communities, and really reducing the stigma that's out there related to children's mental health.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, as any, any parent starting on this journey, um, something really important for you to learn, and anybody who's been on this journey knows, that it is so important Um, that you have doctors that are communicating with each other. And I think that that is something um, also that, you know, your organization offers because you have the psychiatrists, you have the neurodevelopmental um, specialists, you have everyone there um, really that that a family could, could use. And it's so important because parents wind up spending their days trying to fill everybody in and, you know, there's a lot of misinformation.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's, it, I talk to a lot of families about my role as being, and every doctor's role there is to kind of be their quarterback, to handle, you know, to kind of look at the overall functioning of a child between their their psychiatric uh, functioning, their academic functioning, their social functioning, their family functioning, their learning functioning, and to really understand each piece of that and be able to coordinate care with all of those different facets rather than kind of saying, well, I'm just going to help you with your anxiety if you need help with your... Testing. go to someone else if you need some help with your medicine go with someone else Absolutely. at the child mind institute we we handle all of that under one roof and we talk to each other and we collaborate um daily there's you know i'm constantly bumping into doctors and saying hey you know what do you think what's going on with this kid and how about we do this instead and, and so there's this back and forth dialogue that is just so unique
0: it um, is, so it, it really is, amazing. is just
1: transforming the 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 field
0: all right, because, you know, that's one of the biggest stresses for parents. And, you know, one of the things I've been telling parents forever is to really, really journal. Because, you know, it's when you're going back and forth, you forget who you say what to. You know, you forget the dosage. And this is its just, it's, it's huge. It's really just huge for the families. And tonight um, we're going to be focusing on anxiety and OCD. Um, and I, actually, Wednesday night, I have Dr. Kurtz coming on, um, another doctor um, over there. And we're going to be discussing ADHD and selective mutism. And we're trying to work out. We're talking with your media people there. And hopefully, you'll be having a show here on the network, which would be amazing for parents. Oh, that'd be great. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're looking to do a monthly show, which would be fantastic. Um, so I want to start off about anxiety. And, um, you know, I think that oftentimes, these kids are really dismissed and um it's very misunderstood you know i think that people think that they're shy kids or they're nervous kids and really it's it's just nothing could be further from the truth of these children that have these severe disorders they are really disabling
1: right and what the one of the most really kind of disturbing parts of that is you know people will kind of say well it's it's just anxiety you should just be able to deal with it and what's the matter with you and it's all in your head and you know but and that's just so dismissive uh, especially when you consider that anxiety is a condition of the brain, you know you wouldn't you would never say to a child with diabetes, "Ugh, oh, you're being ridiculous, just enough with your blood sugar, just deal right exactly. so to 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 taste to someone who's you know having a in a condition of the brain to just deal with it or just just do better is really just uh um showing this kind of profound Um, misunderstanding or ignorance of of what these conditions really are and how badly these children suffer really needlessly because there's so much great help out there. Um, But just, again, that stigma around, you know, that you can just get over it and just deal with it really prevents people from getting help and ends up, you know, contributing to their struggling over time.
0: Right, and I'm glad that you did say that because you know I think for some children, um, as with one of mine, you know there was an organic basis to it, um, and there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. And I like that, um, you know, in one uh, in your bio somewhere, and I had read that you refer to it as you know obsessive compulsive disorder spectrum, and it really
1: is. Um, yeah, and, and and what what that really refers to is you know that there's there's a, a, a series of conditions kind of related to OCD. Um, that are not exactly OCD but function similarly to it in that they have either obsessions which are, um, you know, unwanted or intrusive thoughts, images or impulses that cause anxiety, and then compulsions are the things that people do to kind of get rid of the anxiety from the obsessions. There's a whole series of disorders that are kind of related to OCD, but but the difference, we refer to that as the OCD spectrum.
0: Right. And, you know, I think it's very hard because as it it's it's a disorder of irrationality, and you know I think that the more that you tell a kid that they're being irrational about you know needing to do have compulsive compulsions whether they need to have rituals or their mental compulsions, it just adds to the stress so you know how do disorders affect children differently than they affect adults
1: well it's it's a good question I think there there's a lot of situations where uh, you could you could have a, a five-year-old child have the same symptoms as a 50-year-old man uh, or woman. So that the age doesn't necessarily um, mean that the type of symptoms are going to be different, uh, and certainly they will interfere in, in each other's lives in, in, in respective ways. So a, a child is, is you know going to have symptoms that may interfere with their social functioning, their school functioning, um, and their overall mood, whereas an adult might have symptoms that interfere with more with their work. Or the relation, their more interpersonal relationships. But one one very distinct difference is insight and just kind of awareness of the symptoms. In OCD, in the younger ages, up until about seven or eight, we we see a lot of kids doing um, rituals based on what we call the just right feeling. That they're okay, tapping absolutely. a certain number of times, or they're washing their hands a certain number of times until it feels right, and then they know to stop. And as kids get older into the tween years and into the adult years, um, it often transforms into what we refer to as magical thinking, which is that kind of superstitious quality to their thoughts. So that if I touch something that's dirty, I'm going to worry about getting sick, so then washing helps me feel better from from worrying about getting sick, and I'll wash until I think I'm no longer dirty. So the symptoms can be the same. We could see the hand-washing be the same, but the reason they're doing the same symptom could be different, and it's so important to know what the what the thought is that's driving the symptom. Because if we just treated it like, well, just don't wash your hands as much anymore, but we're not targeting the fear, the treatment's not going to work.
0: Exactly, and you know, there's also the, um, you know, the evening up. Um, you know, if, the, if you if you kiss them on one cheek, it could make them very uncomfortable that they need to be kissed on the other cheek. Um, right. You know, there's just so many different issues. And, you know, I think, you know, for one of my children, the sensory issues are really very problematic. And, you know, I understand she's not the only one with OCD with sensory issues. And, you know, these sensory issues are physically painful. So could you do, talk about that a little bit to the parents?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of time, we do see a lot of overlap in, in sensory uh, integration with, with anxiety. Um, and so one of the theories is that when you're very anxious, uh, your your skin and your and your body become much more sensitive um, so that the things that touch your skin, you know, for someone, um, you know, they now make uh, like men's T-shirts, for example, that, that no longer have the tag in the back, that the the tag is kind of printed into the shirt, so we mm-hmm. no longer feel the tag. But for someone who's very anxious or kind of wound up a lot, they're really going to feel the tag that's on the back. It's going to kind of drive them insane to the point, not really insane, but it's going to drive them, Um, so bonkers that they're going to want to take the shirt off and just never wear it again. So they really do kind of feel things more intensely than other people do. Uh, And again, as a parent or as an educator or as someone looking from the outside who doesn't understand this, they're going to say, oh, the kid's just being annoying. Like, just put the shirt on already. What's the big deal? Um, But it really is that they feel it much more intensely. And we see that across the senses, you know, someone who has a heightened sense of smell, really smells things at a much deeper level than other kids do and really tastes foods differently than other kids do, which just helps to kind of explain why there might be some food aversions, especially to, like, fruits and vegetables.
0: Right. And, you know, a lot of parents parents have concern about how, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, Um, you know, how much they should be involved in or help in participation with? I mean, I know my children. My child was very young. She was four when she had severe. Hers came from mm-hmm. a strep infection. Um, and it's very difficult because, I mean, you really have to help these kids calm and be comfortable. But on the other hand, you know, you wonder how much are you adding to it by, you know, helping them with their rituals of the compulsion. So how does a parent find a balance?
1: Well, I, I think it, it, it's a very good question. I think... Um, there's times where um, parents, out of you know, uh, with really good intentions, and uh, will, will do things to enable or to kind of uh, allow for the condition to get worse. Um, for example, with a child who like, you know who has OCD, who doesn't want to touch the doorknob because they're afraid of getting sick and getting germs, parents will open the doors for them, right? So they're kind of make, helping the child feel less anxious in the moment um, and enabling the the symptom. But ultimately, that leads to more problems down the road, and, and parents don't always know that. They always just kind of look at,
0: right?
1: Or tend to look at the, the, sh- the in the moment kind of functioning and say, "Well, if I can just do something to relieve the anxiety now, I'll do it because then I don't have to know. I don't have to know that my child's is struggling." Um, but we often, you know, when we talk about educating parents and, and educating kids about these conditions. A really useful metaphor is, is with the, the mosquito bite. You know, if you get bit by a mosquito, it itches. And so what a lot of people do is, will, you know, you'll scratch it to make it feel better. And while you're scratching it, it feels okay. But as soon as you stop scratching, the itching gets worse. So the very thing that you were doing in the moment to make it better, in the long run, makes it worse. So we we really want to educate parents about the the do's and the don'ts and the kind of the healthy ways of helping your child. Um, get better and be able to fight this condition off and and get some mastery over it and get some control over it, Um, but doing that in a a proactive way, in a way that's supportive, rather than uh, in a way that just kind of helps to maintain or even um, lead to more disturbance over time.
0: Right, and we're going to go into the CBT um, in, in depth a little bit. But before we do, I want to talk about the root of anxiety disorders in children, because there's definitely a genetic component to it, um, you know. And I just wonder, you know, how much, you know, how do parents unravel it? I mean, can trauma, can emotional trauma, you know, trigger something like this? Could it be a situational type thing? So, you know, how can, what is at the root of these anxiety disorders in children and teens? You know, can they be prevented, and and how do, what do parents do about it?
1: um well it 's a good question there 's a lot a lot of points there so um i th- i think there's you know we 've learned a lot over the years in our research um in these conditions and you know when psychiatry and psychology kind of first started we 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 thought that the root of these conditions was really about having unresolved issues and that you know a child with anxiety is that way because their parents didn't wipe their tush, you know, well enough, or that they that they were right. too involved in the kids' lives, and that's why they have this, these anxieties. But that we know now from the research that that's the farthest thing from the truth. Right. That the, these conditions again are conditions of the brain. They're conditions of genetics. They're conditions of biochemistry, uh, and they can be learned uh, in some situations. So the the root cause. Um, we're still learning through our genetics research and through our, our research and, and other branches of medicine what really is the kind of the, the, the um brain chemistry or the brain function roots. Um but what we've also learned over these years is that the treatments we have are really effective. Um so we're not as concerned right now with finding the roots as we are about getting control of 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 symptoms and, and conditions as they happen.
0: Right. You know, I love um, South I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, I, I often, you know, say that to, to people, you know, when you hear the words mental illness, take out the mental and remember illness because it exactly. really is an illness. And, you know, serotonin. And it should be brain transmitter. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's like Joe Pantaliano from, um, he was in The Sopranos, but he has um, No Kidding Me Too. Um, you know, and he calls it brain disease. And, right. you know, it really is. And, you know, that's what, what parents and, and educators have to understand. We post all the time, um, you know, different tools that teachers can use for these kids because, I mean, you know, the, it's a very anxious setting to begin with, um, you know, being away from home, especially for a young child. But a young child with obsessive-compulsive disorder or an anxiety disorder, it is is torture.
1: Yes, it can be. And then they, they kind of learn their ways of dealing with the anxiety, and that it helps them in those moments, but... They usually, you know, tend not to be the greatest coping skills, and they t- t- tend to make the condition worse. Right. Um, but it is like that mosquito bite, you know, it is really reinforcing to scratch that bite when it when it feels good to scratch. So it's hard to give up something that feels good in the moment and allow yourself to kind of feel vulnerable to the anxiety to do something different. Um, and that's why it's so important to for for parents going back to your your point about can it be prevented. You know, we're not at the point in science right now where we can prevent anxiety disorder from occurring, but we know enough about them now that we can kind of give parents warning signs to to kind of be on the lookout for things or to kind of teach parents to be proactive. So if you see your child struggling in some ways, and it's kind of more than just a couple of days or a couple of weeks, to really be proactive in getting help and really intervening very quickly, which improves prognosis tremendously. So it's. I think we we kind of need to. We're move. We're trying to get science to move towards preventing. But right now we need to kind of be intervening as quickly as possible.
0: Absolutely. And you know what are some of the red flags? Maybe you know briefly, just like um, you know at different ages, what would be red flags that a parent should be concerned?
1: Um, well, I think in in general, you know, it, it, um, uh, we, we get concerned about anxiety when when it starts interfering with with a kid's life. Uh, especially when anxiety is unrealistic, it's or it's it's out of proportion to the context of a situation. Uh, so, for example, a, a child who's being dropped off at, at 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 pre-K or at nursery school, you know, I think all kids will have some level of distress at the drop-off, especially in the beginning. But a child, for example, with separation anxiety disorder, is going to have a lot of distress. They're going to be very clingy and very whiny, and they're going to tantrum, and it's really going to be an over-the-top reaction. And I think when that kind of over-the-top reaction occurs day after day, week after week, it really starts to show that that's not the, kid, the child's not going to grow out of it, and it's becoming uh, it's, a, it's a red flag. Um, um, the same thing with a, when someone um, has anxiety, it leads to avoidance. You know, so now they don't want to go to school, or they give a lot of trouble, or a lot of di- they show a lot of difficulties in the morning getting dressed for school because they're anticipating that drop-off and they just don't want to go. Right. Um, and especially if that leads to stomach aches and headaches and and kind of attempts to kind of, maybe not um, like well-thought-out attempts, but just, you know, any kind of things to kind of be an excuse to not go to school.
0: And they, so, do, and in some way they do actually make themselves physically sick, um, you know, to the point of vomiting, or, I mean, their color changes,
1: their you
0: know, sweating. And it's horrible right. for these children, you know?
1: Right, right. And, again, it's not... They're not choosing to do this. It's not like they right. woke up one day and said, you know, I, I really want to bother mom. What's a good way to do it? Oh, I know I make myself sick. <laughs> right. right. So it really is, you know, I mean, they're struggling, w- but they just don't. Exactly. They don't want drugs to be like to hold this. on to something. Right. Yeah, I
0: mean, they they don't want to be tortured. And to me, when I see it, I mean, it, to me, it's torture. You know, and I hear so many people say, well, you know, when, where is all this coming from? We didn't have this 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I think they did. I think they just oh, we definitely really did. Dismissed it, and I think that um, you know. Thank God, reporting and diagnosis has improved. But I mean, I, this is nothing new.
1: No, this is nothing new. There's there's reports of OCD uh, you know hundred years ago. Um, I think we just um, the, the the field of OCD is a relatively young one. You know, we uh, if you really look at the, where the research is. Um, really started it. Really started in like the, the late 70s, early 80s. So it's a really young field uh, in right. relation to other conditions. Uh, but it's amazing what we've established in that 20 or 30 years. Um, but we we absolutely in previous generations had people who had anxiety, whether it OCD or generalized anxiety or or panic disorder. Um, but they were isolated. They were thought to be kind of freaks of society, and they were just absolutely. you know they were kind of shunned. Mm-hmm. Um, now we now we know what those conditions are, and we have amazing treatments for them.
0: Right. So I, I think we're we're seeing
1: me. more. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I think we're we're seeing more reporting uh, of these conditions, um, and we're getting a much better sense of how uh, how many people these conditions really affect because of people being able to come out and say, okay, this is my I am struggling. This is what the condition is, and because of our research and our studies, we're really able to kind of say, okay, that's exactly what fits perfectly into OCD and we know what it is and let's treat it. Whereas before I think the stigma and the the lack of knowledge prevented people from coming out and trying to get help.
0: Right, And you know exactly because the stigma, I mean even now um, you know in this day and age I mean there are parents that are still embarrassed um, you know and that are just Um, you know, too uncomfortable to, you know, say my child has, you know, these issues and that they need help, you know, and it's really a shame because, you know, these kids suffer. I mean, I've been dealing with this for 14 years. My first one was four years old and, you know, even in the same family, it's very different. I mean, I had one who who had the OCD from four and then I have another one now who hasn't developed it until 16. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just very odd and you know, I think that's important too, that it doesn't always it's not something always that's apparent from a very young age.
1: Right. Right. There's and there's um there's different uh um there's different anxieties that affect kids across different ages. You know, so we typically, for example, don't see separation anxiety disorder starting in the tween or teen years. Uh mm-hmm. that's something we expect to kind of see young in younger kids. Um and at the same time, we don't necessarily see panic disorder starting in younger kids. We see that starting in the in the tween years and and beyond, the teen years and beyond. So I I think there's um, as we become educated about these conditions, we have to kind of be able to see across the chronological span what conditions kind of make sense for the time period the kids are in.
0: Right, and you know now we're going to talk about treatment, and I can tell you, I I people should learn from my mistakes. Really, because, um, you know, I did uh, talk therapy with my child for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it actually wound up making things worse because, as it was explained to me, is that if you have a child with severe anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder and they go twice a week and talk about how anxious they are but are not given the tools to do anything about it, it worsens the condition. That's what I saw and, you know, that's what I had been told. So why don't you tell us, because you really are the man, to CBT. So why don't you tell us of what cognitive behavioral therapy is, how it differs from talk therapy, and, um, you know, how you go about this, because I think people think of exposure and response as this very harsh um, treatment, but it's not like that. So can you just take your time yeah. and tell parents what this is?
1: Yeah, and, it, you know, it just as a, as a side, it really drives me crazy. It's a pet peeve of mine when I hear a pediatrician or even another therapist say to a family, "Oh, your child's not ready for CBT." Yeah. Uh, that 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 is for me one of my biggest pet peeves because it's just kind of saying it's like saying, "You know what? Your child's not really ready to get better yet, right?" Um, so so cognitive behavioral therapy is a, a form of of therapy um, that's that's um, uh, evidence based, meaning it has a lot of research behind it to show that it's effective. It's considered the gold standard of treatment for anxiety disorders, depression, ADHD, um, uh, the, pretty much the whole spectrum of childhood um, uh, disorders. Um, and so, you know, it's it's interesting in, in that, you know, when you – the the field is not a unified field, meaning, you know, psychiatry, psychology, social work, mental health. You can have people who have different training and different orientations and therefore look at problems in the same conditions in slightly different ways. It's different than, like, dentistry. You know, if you go to a dentist in Wyoming and you have a cavity, the, the treatment there is going to be the same as it would be in New York City. It's, it's good because they all have the same treatment training. Um, so there's there's different... Types of therapy. There's people who are kind of more, like you said, traditional talk therapy, where it's kind of coming in and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, tell me more, tell me more, and it's not really advice driven or skill driven. Absolutely. Uh, and not. then you have you have CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which which kind of looks at the here and now. It's you know I, I'm very interested in in kids' past, but I don't necessarily need to know their past to be able to give them skills and strategies in the here and now. And I often give the the analogy of like a a flat tire. You know, we could look at a flat tire and and say, okay, well, let's think about all the bumps we ever hit that could maybe have caused this tire to be flat. Or we could look at it and say, okay, it's flat. Let's put the spare on and move on our way, and then we can figure it out when we're moving forward. And that's Mm -hmm. essentially what CBT does is it kind of gives us the skills and strategies to understand where we are now and be able to move forward. And so – The the C in cognitive behavioral therapy uh, really looks at how people think and teach them to recognize when they're thinking irrationally and then be able to change those irrational thoughts into more rational versions of them. So you actually can become a more rational, more grounded thinker, which then affects how you feel and affects what you do. And the the, the goal of CBT is to to address think, feel, do. And we kind of feel like if if you can um, address, one You can change one part of that triad and you can change how the whole picture plays out of think, feel, do. Um, the behavioral side of CBT looks at giving skills and strategies for the things that you do. Um, so you mentioned exposure and response prevention is considered one of the, the best techniques or strategies we have within CBT. Um, that um, allows a, a person to experience something that they're afraid of um, without allowing them to engage in the rituals to get rid of the anxiety. So, if, for example, like going back to the mosquito bite, if you had the mosquito bite and didn't scratch, it would itch and it it would be uncomfortable, but you would learn over time to tolerate that discomfort and you wouldn't need to, to scratch it. And that is similar to, like, um, jumping into a pool on a hot day. You know, if, if you jump in, you're going to feel the temperature of the water, but if you stay in the water, eventually you adapt and your body gets used to it. The temperature stays the same, but you adapt. And we see the That's same thing happening analogy. with anxiety. Yeah. Right. right. And I, I often talk about, you know, it's for other senses as well. If I, You know, if um, we were in, a, in uh, an office together and I bit into an onion, a raw onion, I threw it in my trash can and people came into the room, it would smell like onions. But if you allow yourself to just stay in there and breathe it, after a little while your body adapts to it and you no longer smell it. But if you're constantly plugging your nose, you're never giving yourself a chance to get used to it, and you won't.
0: And I think what's and, important to know, the parents to know, is that what you're going to explain now, this can be done very gently. This isn't like having a child who's afraid of sharks and throwing them in a shark tank.
1: No, you know, it's, a, it's a very gentle, and I think that's part of the bad rap that CBT has had over the years, right. is that because we have so much research behind this, We've been able to to manualize our treatment and say, okay, in in 12 sessions we can get you markedly better. And then people kind of say, well, they're just going to throw you into, literally throw you into the sharks. Um, But, no, it's, it's a very structured, systematic approach that goes at everyone's individual pace. So if you're afraid of sharks, yeah, I mean, one day I would want you to like swimming with the sharks. But first I'm going to want to have you write a story about sharks. And maybe even just write the word shark because even writing the word might be scary for you. And then we would look at pictures of sharks online, and then we would read a book about sharks, and then we'd watch a movie about sharks, and then we would go to a aquarium and look at sharks so there's it's kind of helping people overcome the anxiety for each step um and then feel confident and motivated they could they did that. maybe I can do the next one too, and so you actually get more motivation, more confidence as the treatment progresses and it and really it takes, is
0: it takes time you know it could take time.
1: It can, it can, but you know, for 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 most kind of mild to moderate cases, we do we we are able to see anywhere between a thirty and sixty percent improvement within ten to twelve sessions.
0: Oh, absolutely, so, yeah, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. I mean, with my daughter, she had a fear of escalators, and that one mm-hmm. was fun. Um, you know, the first week we we parked outside the mall. And we went a few days for the week, and then the next time we went and we looked at it. And long story short, you know, little by little we got closer, we touched it, and then finally one day she got on and laughed all the way up and all the way down. Um, But, you know, it took weeks of very, very gently, you know, introducing it to her again.
1: Right. Yep. And so, you know, I think that's, that's a very good example of where the treatment can, you know, can go at someone's pace without forcing them to do it. So it, you have to remember it's a voluntary experience, and, it, and it's, but it is about learning how to tolerate the anxiety that comes from each step. And once you've mastered the anxiety from that step, you're ready for the next one. And you actually kind of train yourself to become better at tolerating that distress. And it's incredibly rewarding to treat. It's incredibly rewarding to see kids who are really struggling and really suffering 10 weeks, 12 weeks be- later be so much better. It, it's really a, a, amazing
0: yeah and you know it's <clears throat> a, it it really is from what i've seen the only um behavioral type treatment that works for these kids um that's not to say that medications also don't work and i want to preface this by saying that the child mind institute does not accept funding from the pharmaceutical industry um which okay. is important um it's but very you know important. medications very important that i preface that um but medications do help a lot of these kids as well.
1: Yes, and you know I think it's important also just kind of it's 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 um, the, the CBT can be very effective for for uh, kids who have mild to moderate levels of, of anxiety, um, but for the kids who are more moderate to severe, medicine is often is often considered a a, um, a very good option. In fact, if you look at the research and you really um, uh, see what, what how this plays out. Um, uh, medication alone will give an equal response to CBT alone. So, for the parents that are kind of ambivalent and don't know if the medicine is the right thing, CBT is a really good place to start. But if it's not enough, it, off the, off the, you know, at the beginning, or um, the child's really struggling, uh, and it's really much more severe at, at the beginning. The combination is by far the most effective approach.
0: Absolutely. So it really
1: does kind of become a case by case situation.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I want to just move on a little bit now. And if anybody looking for information, if you, uh, again, if you go to childmind.org website, it is a treasure trove. Everything is on there. The articles from all the doctors, it's just incredible. And, um, you know, there's much more information on there about obsessive-compulsive disorder. But um, Dr. Bubrick is also, I mean, you really are a voice for these children. And you have started Speak Up for Kids. So, can you tell us what that is? How you started it? And you have a lot of events planned for this week. So, tell us what you have coming up.
1: Yes, I, I would love to say that I actually started it myself, but I I, I think my my uh, my boss would be upset if he if he heard that I actually <laughs> started it. But so I was part of the movement. <laughs> um, but Speak Up for Kids is um, uh, our we're in our second year of our it's an annual public education campaign that we run during National Children's Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, so it was designed, We, you know, we, we thought about, you know, in, in last year, um, and this is just our in our second year, so it's really amazing what we've accomplished in just two years. Um, but last year we were kind of, um, we wanted to get the word out and we wanted to kind of decrease stigma and increase awareness and education. And we thought, wouldn't it be nice if we gave a couple talks to the community and then we thought, you know, that's just really not enough. We really need to get the word out there on a national level and an international level. Uh, and so we, um, through our our great partners, were able to kind of get many several hundreds of of, of, of professionals in in their fields of psychiatry, psychology, and social work uh, give talks uh, for free to uh, their um, in their communities. Um, and it was really in, in many of most of the states and and across the world and this year we're we're looking to do that and, and expand it uh, uh tremendous immensely from, from there so we really um are are as part of our mission wanting to get the word out and and and, and again decrease stigma and increase awareness and acceptance of, of these conditions so we're we're running again speak up for kids uh, uh, um, a campaign to really uh, educate as many people as we can, uh, and if you look at ChildMind.org, you can click on the on a map that actually shows um, uh, the numbers of talks that we're doing throughout the that there are, people are are have signed up to do throughout the world, and it's really fascinating to see it is how many people across the globe have have participated. It really is. It's just
0: incredible, and um, you know I know that some of the events are here in New York, um, but most of them also you have um, things going on Facebook. Um, yeah. So you know that's another great way. If parents can't get to the um, to the lectures themselves, that the, you know, and as you said, they're on your website, and it's just uh, yeah. incredible. They can
1: get a, a full listing of of wherever they are. They can get a full listing of what's going on in, in their in their areas, and also how to stream online and get um, and get uh, be able to view online as well.
0: Right. Well, you're going to be at the 92nd Street Y tomorrow morning. Correct. Right.
1: And, and I, will, um, I will be doing a similar talk on when to worry about your kids' worries.
0: Okay, perfect. And um, so anywhere they can go, I mean, that's just fantastic. And um, also tomorrow is um, Dr. Stephen Kurtz, who is our guest on Wednesday, um, and he's going to be doing a live um Facebook, I guess it must be some type of a chat, at um, noon. And as we said, there are a whole bunch of different events that you're um, you're hosting, and it is an incredible, incredible organization. I thank you for coming on. Um, I'm Thanks sure having... that when we work out the monthly show that, uh, you know, I'd love to have you back.
1: Well, thank you. I'd love to.
0: Okay. Um, so is there anything, uh, last words of advice that you can give parents, because it is so stressful?
1: Um. Yeah, but it really shouldn't be stressful for parents. There's a lot of great resources out there. Um, There's a a lot of good treatments. Um, It's just a matter of educating yourselves and being like as you would if if your child did a brain surgery. You're going to educate yourself about the condition. You're going to go out and interview doctors. Um, So educate yourself, empower yourselves, and then you become the biggest advocate for your child. It becomes easy from there. Um, It's just a matter of kind of taking the, the necessary steps to start the process.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? become an informed educated parent here on the coffee clutch and we are going to be bringing you some of the most outstanding experts in children's mental um, health this month we've had dr dimitri populous is coming back for his third appearance um, dr charles parker i mean the list goes on and on you can check the website um, so we are going to be definitely be making you aware thank you for joining us tonight